Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome, everyone. And for anyone whom I haven't met, my name is Donald Rothberg, and we have our Wednesday gathering. We sit for in silence for about uh, 40 minutes. We have a group practice, and then we have a little bit of a break, come back for talk and discussion. So let me invite, as I usually do, um, show of hands for anyone who is new to mindfulness meditation or rusty. Okay. We won't ask which it is. <laughs> so I'll give some very basic uh, introductory instructions. But first, find a posture where you can be uh, both relaxed and alert. Usually this means to have good connection with the ground through the chair or the cushion, feet flat on the floor if you're in a chair. Uh, back straight. We actually could use, um, be a little bit better to have chairs more like this that let you uh, sort of uh, have a little bit of the forward tilt to the pelvis which lets you arch your back. You can do that if you're sitting on a cushion and have the back straight, a sense of the spine straight from the back of the head down to the base of the spine and chest open as much as possible, the hands not causing one to slump forward. So it's good to have the hands a little bit up. And then helpful to set an intention, both in terms of uh, your larger intention for practicing why we do this, and then it uh, can be helpful to have a more specific intention based on how the mind and heart and body are now and what's a skillful way to proceed. So for example, if I'm really distracted, I'm gonna keep on coming back and give, him, give myself some slack. So I'll give some time for setting those intentions, both more global and more specific. And then the core instructions for our insight meditation involve typically two phases. First, uh, settling the mind some. And secondly, when the mind is somewhat settled, looking carefully at whatever is happening in experience. So for the first phase, we focus on a particular object, uh, often the breath, sometimes something else. We focus on with the breath where the breath is easiest to follow. Sometimes the area of the belly, we can even keep the hand there or the area of the chest, the lungs expanding and contracting or the nostrils, breath coming in, going out. We 
Focus on the breath where the breath is easiest to track. You might want to experiment if you're new to see what that is. And then if for any reason the breath is not emotionally neutral, such as if there's a history of asthma, then we can focus somewhere else. We really want a kind of an anchor focus. And the the core practice is, uh, in this first phase, is that we stay with the sensations around this anchor. For most of us, the breath. And when the mind wanders, we simply bring it back to the breath. Alternative anchors could be the sensations of the hands touching or the contact with the cushion or, or sound. In all those cases, we simply are with the sensations and we come back whenever the mind wanders. In the second phase, we especially do when there's some degree of stability with the the breath, but to some extent it's involved in the first as well, is that is when the mind does wander, we notice where the mind has gone and we make a very quiet mental label. If, it's a, if our mind goes off with planning, we may note planning. Typically when we notice it, it ends, we just go back to the breath. Or we might notice remembering something or fantasizing or something like that. And we could just make a very quiet mental label for the kind of thought or uh, mental process that's occurring. We could also, if something lasts for a while, takes our attention away, like sensations in the body or emotions, which generally when we notice them don't always go away, they last, then we can shift our anchor from the breath or something else to the object which now has our attention, we say, which has predominance. And we stay with it as long as it's predominant. So we may have sensations in the knee, let's say, we stay there until it's no longer predominant, or we're not sure what's predominant, and then we go back to the breath or whatever else the anchor is. So when in doubt, we come back to the anchor. So we'll, we'll sit now.
the mind wanders, simply notice that and come back and keep coming back. doesn't matter how many times. It's where the learning occurs.
As we continue to sit quietly, I'd like to invite our group practice that we do the last uh, minutes of the sitting, the silent sitting. We create a space where anyone who would like to speak could speak on the one hand about a person or situation or part of the world needing attention, care, concern. On the other hand, a person, group, situation, part of the world where there's reason for gratitude or appreciation or celebration. When you speak, uh, please speak uh, two or three times more loudly than you might ordinarily so someone on the other end of the hall can hear you. Be on the brief side, but still give enough uh, detail so we know what you're talking about.
anyone else uh, would like to speak, now is the time. So again, good morning. Is the sound okay? Okay. Wanna welcome everyone again for anyone whom I haven't met. My name is Donald Rothberg and I'm here about half the time. The other half, Sylvia Borstein is here. She'll be here, I think the next uh, four weeks. No, no, I'm, I'll be here next week and then, then she'll be here uh, three weeks. That's right, okay, correction. So I um, want to welcome people, and I'm uh, also a member of the Teachers' Council here. We've been having this Wednesday gathering since about 1990 or 91. I've been helping with it for about 16 or 17 years. So I want to welcome people who are here for the first time. If you'd be willing to uh, raise your hand and say your name and where you live, we want to welcome you. Maybe start on this side, please. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Tom and I'm from Fairfax. Welcome. I'm Deborah and I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina. From North Carolina? Yes. What part again? Wilmington. Oh, Wilmington. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just teaching in North Carolina for a few weeks in uh, October, November. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Please. I'm Allison and I'm from Inverness. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. What part? Uh, Wilton. Yeah. Welcome. I'm Jeannie. I'm from San Francisco. Welcome. I'm Sinky. I'm from San Francisco. Welcome. Please. Welcome. Yeah. Again, so I'll give a few announcements. We'll have a little bit of a break, seven or eight minutes, um, and then come back typically for a talk and discussion. Sometimes we have... Uh, a shorter talk and dyads or groups and explore things together and sometimes have uh, guided practices during the initial session. So, And um, just for your information, all of the uh, talks are recorded uh, from Wednesday morning and, and they're put on the website dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org, and so they're available for um, listening. Uh, it's a, a site that's based just on um, free offerings, donations, and uh, there are thousands of talks there for people who don't know that, quite a resource. So um, a few announcements from, from me. Uh, as usual on the back table, I have uh, my teaching schedule, a few upcoming events, and I'll, I'll name two. Uh, one is uh, a day long, 
in uh, Oakland at the East Bay Meditation Center on January 6th on one of my favorite topics called Transforming the Judgmental Mind. We've talked about that some here, but if you haven't fully worked that one out, <laughs> you might consider the day long. And there's some flyers on that. It's uh, January 6th, I think it's like 9.30 to 5. And I co-teach it with Shahara Godfrey. And then uh, January 20th, I think right here, another day long called uh, Dukkha and the End of Dukkha. Uh, Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. So if you're interested in the end of suffering and you haven't worked that one out, <laughs> you can come also. And that'll be co-taught with Heidi Bourne, who often uh, teaches here when neither Sylvia or I are here. So, and then uh, also a reading list uh, back there, as well as uh, I have a card for uh, the Marin Sangha, which meets in San Rafael on Sunday nights, where I'm actually one of the uh, guiding teachers there. And I teach about eight or ten times a year there, including the next two Sundays. So... That's on my teaching schedule. And then lastly, a few copies of a book uh, that I've done uh, connecting inner work with social service and social change work called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which I usually bring and I have an envelope. If you want to buy it, I'll sign it. Okay, so other announcements, please. So the, the chairs would go in by by the where the other chairs are stacked. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Any other announcements? Okay. Let's come back uh, in about seven or eight minutes. So a minute or two before eleven by that clock, I'll ring a bell and Pamela will ring a bell in the bookstore, where you can't hear the bell from here. So if you go in the bookstore. Be careful, we, we have lost a few people over the years <laughs> whose remains are in one of the corners. <laughs> okay, so I'll ring some bells when we come back.
How are we doing in the back? Are there still people out in the foyer? Okay, was the bell rung out there? Okay. So I wanted to explore uh, today and then also next week uh, a theme related to the time of year that we're in, which is the time when we're coming into the greatest darkness and then the coming of greater light, the time around the winter solstice, around a lot of holidays related to, to light, uh, the power of this time was so great that they were able to change the birthday of Jesus from April to December, <laughs> according to scholars, to compete, I guess, with the ceremonies of light that were occurring otherwise. So interesting. So it's a very, it's a very uh, powerful time. Outwardly, the earth uh, slows down. A lot of the processes of the plants, the trees, and so forth are more internal. There's a certain quiet time. And again, across uh, most cultures, it's been a time of the appreciation and even celebration of the mystery of uh, going into darkness and coming back into light. And we have these, these holidays. Um, again, like I say, Christmas was shifted. Hanukkah in the United States was shifted from a minor holiday to a major holiday to compete with Christmas. <laughs> so a lot of interesting cultural phenomena going on. And also it's the time of Kwanzaa. Uh, we have New Year's. And it, you know, if we were following the rhythms of the earth, we would, we would be like the earth. We would stop. We would slow down. We might have a break for a month or two, which was the case in many cultures. Uh, we uh, seem to speed up often around this time. And um, I'm going to suggest uh, that actually we can benefit ourselves as well as the larger culture by seeing if we can have a chance to slow down, uh, take stock, look inwardly, uh, 
have a period when we're not so frenetic. Um, This is something that my uh, friend and colleague Diana Winston wrote about like over 15 years ago. It was uh, about the speed of contemporary culture. And I think it's gotten more extreme. So this is what she said. Contemporary America, we love fast things, fast cars, fast meals, microwaves, one night stands, instant credit, overnight express, cable modems, amphetamines, pizza delivery, make everything. Then she says, what did we do before email? So 15 years later, we know what we did after email, right? So I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy or are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have to, got to help me stop. <laughs> Can anyone relate to that? Yes. <laughs> and so, um, the invitation of um, really the talk and of our time of year is to see if we can actually find a time to slow down and stop and not just go from one thing to another. I remember, you know, I was, um, I taught in conventional universities for seven years and I remember teaching, I taught four years at the University of Kentucky. And I remember um, urging people at the end of a semester just to take a little bit of time to reflect or to pause or to see what they had learned rather than go instantly from one thing to another. And it was hard, it was going against the grain for them to do that. And so here we may be more inclined to, to find a time to, you know, to find even a few days, a week, to slow down, take stock, go within, look more deeply. That's going to be the encouragement of the talk. And again, some things are not in our control, but maybe something things are. You know, I, I thought of uh, the historian Arnold Toynbee said the mark of cultural creativity uh, when he looked across thousands of years of history was where there were patterns of withdrawal and return. And I think that's true for individuals as well, where we can have patterns of some kind of withdrawal and some kind of return with uh, hopefully more perspective to our lives. So I want to explore that that topic today and next time and offer some uh, specific ways that we might that we might do this and this is uh, uh, the encouragement is to do so while recognizing the uh, the crises of our time if you were just facing the looking at the outer crises you might say I don't have time to withdraw I just need to whatever work on climate issues all the time or whatever, her work on choose it, your, your, your choice of five or six or ten systemic crises that we're in the midst of, which I probably don't need to name, right? You know, that, that we know that, that's, that, that, that they're there. And so what I want to do is explore 
I think, four ways that we can respond to this time and find a way to stop, to gain further perspective, to, in a way, um, leave the busyness and the habits for a while and hopefully come back with more perspective and refreshment. And I know for myself, uh, I love actually, I teach two retreats right around this time. And so get myself, even as a teacher, to have a retreat around the winter solstice and also right after the winter solstice, the beginning of the new year with our Metta, her loving kindness retreats. And I know that before I was regularly teaching those, I think for 25 years, I virtually always had a retreat uh, over the New Year's. You know, that I would, uh, we have one here, which is uh, quite wonderful. And I, before I moved to the Bay Area, I would do retreats. And I remember some years I organized uh, just informal retreats with friends and neighbors. When I first moved to the Bay Area, living in Berkeley, I helped form a group of neighbors, we just uh, would meditate with each other every morning. And we formed, you know, over several years, we, we had uh, New Year's retreats. I think they were three days long. And we just did them in other people's houses, you know, and no expenses beyond, you know, beyond not working. And they're very wonderful just to, to stop for a period of time. So I want to explore the themes of uh, first of all, stopping, which I've already st- started, so to speak. And um, also the theme of how when we, uh, at this time of year, partly to stop is to go into the dark. That's one of the themes. What, what does it mean to go into the dark? And I want to explore that as uh, in terms of stop, not only stopping, but also some related themes, like going into the dark can mean going into difficulties. It can also mean going into what we don't know, going into unknowing. It can mean also going into darkness, much like the earth, it means to go into what's about to be born. What we can see the darkness as generative and fertile as well, and also as actually producing uh, light and the luminous, what's, what's um, powerful and inspiring in that way. So I'm going to primarily talk about um, the darkness in terms of stopping, in terms of difficulty, in terms of not knowing, in terms of being generative. And then I'll explore next week some of the others. Um, so I'll see, I'll see how far I get with this. So, and what I want to do is also to suggest... Um, practices that we could do over the next week or two that would help us to, even if we were not stopped in this time fully, to have periods of stopping and looking into some of the themes. So I want to really point to ways that we can uh, bring these themes into our lives in the next two weeks. And I hope that it's clear that uh, by talking about darkness, I'm really pointing to both, as it were, uh, challenging or difficult aspects of darkness as well as positive aspects that often in our, in our culture we only have negative connotations of darkness. We talk about the, the dark ages or 
uh, a dark time, and we, we're primarily focused on the negative, and you know, that's related to the way that we also historically have pathologized people who are darker. And so I think it's important to see that darkness is both, has both, uh, what, I don't know if positive and negative is the right way to talk about it, but it has aspects which are difficult or challenging on the one hand and aspects which are generative and helpful on the other. So just to be, just to be clear about that, um, I think one of the dangers of spiritual practice is that we just get attached to the positive. We get attached to the light. We sometimes call this spiritual bypassing, you know, where we just want to have wonderful experiences, not difficult ones. And, you know, I've sometimes made this comment that even when I look at the um, promotional literature for Spirit Rock, I see, in my view, a little bit of an overemphasis on the positive. Maybe that's the nature of promotion. We don't say, come, learn about all your long-time neurotic patterns. (laughs) Be mindful of them more than you care to. for the sake of deep inner growth, which will take longer than you want. (laughs) How many of you would have come to Spirit Rock if that was in the promotional literature? So, um, sort of a change of attitude, partly. This is from the writer uh, Michael Mead, who writes sort of about mythology applied to contemporary times. He said... Those who would know the world and recover the dream of life must pass through the darkened center, traveling where no ideology can know the meanings in the human soul. Here, success and speed are an encumbrance. It is better to move carefully and examine whatever appears. On most days, America fears the darkness. The open 24-hour signs and lights always on say that the rejection of darker people says that the win-at-any-cost dogma says that, yet always climbing to the top and rising to the light casts an increasing shadow over the world and loses touch with many things that the earth darkly knows. I remember uh, when the great Thai teacher, Achan Cha, first came to the U.S. uh, quite a while ago, and he was very struck by the lights that were always on, even though this was like 30 years ago. And he said, there are just so many lights. He said, and then after he'd been here for a while, he said, more outer light, less inner light. <laughs> right? So he was interesting, interesting observations from someone who lives in the forest in Thailand. Right? So the first theme, uh, going into the darkness as a form of, of stopping. And again, this is really to, uh, in a way, be like the earth. Be like the earth, which stops and at least stops outwardly, probably inwardly, biologists would tell us there's incredible action occurring, right? <laughs> there's incredible action getting ready for the spring. And uh, I think we, we can be like that, but can we find again a, a place to stop, even just for a few days, finding ways to stop? And we can do this externally and internally. We do it in our practice by continually uh, coming back to the breath and letting the mind get less busy. One of the meanings of our practice is that we learn to let the really overactive mind, for many of us in this culture, 
uh, quiet down and even come to a stop through that, the practice of coming back to the breath or whatever the anchor is, coming back over and over and developing more stability of mind. And one of the marks of long-term practice is that the compulsive thinking really winds down, that the overthinking and the mind uh, being more active and almost like out of control really shifts. You know, I, I've been practicing for 40 years and I think my, the level of my thinking is probably about 20% of what it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, I was a student, so I was supposed to be thinking all the time. <laughs> but it's about 20%, I think, quality of the thoughts, much higher. So less thinking, better quality. Put that in the promotional literature. <laughs> all right, so less thinking. Oh, I just, I just thought that for the first time. So. <laughs> Very good. So we need to have a certain level of internal stillness and stopping just to listen to what's there, right? That we can't listen to what's deeper if the mind is overly active. Again, one of the reasons that we need both that external stopping, external stopping, and also the internal stopping. This is from the poet Rilke. All creation holds its breath, listening within me, because to hear you, I keep silent. We need to have that that kind of inner silence. And I like to sometimes think paradoxically that we need to have a certain amount of inner stopping in order really to, after we've stopped, to move. To really move in creative ways. To uh, stop, listen deeply, and find out what the next step is. Where our next movement is. So the second, the second theme related to the darkness is about uh, uh, seeing the darkness as the difficult. That's probably the usual connotation, a difficult or painful time connected with the darkness. And really, again, one of the uh, powerful qualities of our practice is that we learn to be with what's challenging or difficult rather than run away from it. You know? And we, we do that especially when what's difficult is in the workable range. Because um, when we talk about being with the difficult or the challenging, again, as a, as a point I, I often make, is that we can't really be mindful very easily, most of us, of what feels like too much or overwhelming. And so we need to, first of all, have a number of different uh, ways of coming back to balance when things are too much or too difficult. But then when things are in the workable range, we can actually be present and be mindful. And so again, one of the hallmarks of our practice is that we find ways to have skillful responses to what's difficult. There's a beautiful teaching uh, in the traditional text called the teaching of uh, transcendental dependent arising. And the, 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 one of the core points of that teaching is that our practice totally changes and moves towards liberation when we work with the difficult in a non-habitual way. What's our habitual way of working with the painful or the difficult? We try to push it away 
And we try to maybe latch on to something positive, but we especially push it away, don't want to deal with it. You know, and this is really right at the center of our practice is learning not to do that, which is not easy. So for some of us, when we first practice, it means learning to be with unpleasant sensations in the body. Again, if they're not causing damage and not overwhelming, we learn to be with knee pain or shoulder pain. And again, it's not in the promotional literature. Come, be more than you'd like with your shoulder pain and learn amazing things. I think that's really true. Anyone relate to that? That there's some truth to being with the unpleasant, right? That we can actually learn essentially how conditioned we are to want only the pleasant and push away the unpleasant, right? It's very deep in our culture, right? Very deep in the culture. And we have that conditioning. And so one of the most powerful aspects of the practice is learning to be willing to open to what's difficult or painful and have skillful ways of doing that, you know? And to, again, the the teaching is that when we actually push away the unpleasant, when we're reactive towards the unpleasant, it's as if we shoot an arrow at ourselves or others. We have that favorite teaching of mine called the teaching of the two arrows, which is that we could speak of having something difficult or painful as being like we're shot by an arrow. And the teaching is that if we're not skillful, we will shoot a second arrow at ourselves or others because of the pain of the first arrow. And that that's very unskillful. And so we would, uh, you know, when we have unpleasant physical sensations, we will tense around them. We will try to make them go away. You know, in the culture, we might take drugs more than we need to or more than that is wise. You know, and we uh, often tense around the pain. I've often made the comment that uh, doctors have said that a large part of uh, the chronic pain, of many types of chronic pain, not all, is the reaction to the chronic pain that as much as 80% of chronic pain isn't the initial stimulus, but it's the reaction to the pain, the tensing. You know, not to mention the mental comments. You know, this will last forever or negative comments about self or about others. And we know that shooting of the second arrow also when we, um, someone does something or says something negative to us and we immediately react back with the negative. That would be an example of shooting the second arrow. Something difficult happens to me, I blame myself, I blame someone else. And that, can, that narrative can last for weeks or months or years, right? And so what we learn to do by opening to what's difficult is we learn not to shoot the second arrow. Really key, really central. Uh, not easy, right? Not easy to do. So we learned, we need to learn a whole set of skills to do that internally, to do that externally. What do you say when someone comes to you with a negative comment? Do you instantly repeat back a negative comment? So again, it's a whole area that we've sometimes explored here about how we have skillful speech. How do we not shoot the second arrow? How, do, how can we be with something difficult or painful? And again, we have a lot of habitual tendencies. And part of our practice is to notice those. 
Notice what those habitual tendencies are. And so initially we learn simply to be with the unpleasant in meditation. Can I be with unpleasant thoughts or emotions and just be with them? Watch my tendency to want to push them away. There's a cartoon which I like a lot, which I sometimes mention here. It shows a young meditator sitting on the cushion saying, today I will live in the present moment. Unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) And so here we hang out with the unpleasant some first and eat the cookies second. Okay, not saying don't eat the cookies, but but we learn how to be with the unpleasant. So this is part of this uh, rhythm of uh, learning to be with what's difficult, which is so crucial. And again, um, I think I probably learned this first coming to this practice that there was an alternative other than simply reacting to the unpleasant. And that we can actually be skillful with the difficulty And so we really have to study all the patterns by which we're reactive. We study what are my habitual patterns when something difficult comes up. Again, it's very helpful as we're doing this also to work with the practices which go to beautiful places. We have our loving kindness practice, our various heart practices. We have practices where we can be with beauty, with with kindness. And I think if, especially if we have a lot of difficulties, it's really crucial to be spending a lot of our time just hanging out with what's beautiful to give us balance as we also are with the difficult. So if if we're in a stretch where we're looking at a lot of difficult or painful or challenging mind states or situations, uh, deliberately spend time with the beautiful, whether it's the trees or the forest or the ocean or art, her music. And so to be with the difficult, we need to often, if it's there a lot, we need to also be with the wonderful and the beautiful, or it gets to be too much. We get a little bit out of balance. And, and so that's a really crucial point. Uh, Zen teacher John Tarrant says, the courage with which we bear our own darkness frees others from having to carry it for us. Interesting, isn't it? Right? So really, uh, really a crucial um, dimension of our practice. Can I really be with what's difficult? Can I do it with my meditation? Can I say, oh, something difficult, it seems workable. Can I be with it and be interested? What's it like when I'm with unpleasant sensations in the body? What's my mind doing? What's really happening? Can I have interest in that? Can I have interest? Oh, I have anger. Can I study anger? Can I be with it? Can I investigate it? You know, one of the most illuminating retreats I ever had was when I was angry for um, most of the days, for 10 days in a row, and I had good guidance, and I studied my anger for 10 days. And it was in the workable range. It wasn't like totally out of control. It was in the workable range. It was kind of like a low boil for 10 days. And I, would, could able, I was able to be mindful of it. And it was so amazing because it was workable. And I said, wow, look at that. 
look at the anger. Look at, the, wow, I never saw anger like that. Wow, look at that. Oh, and I said, wow, look at that. Look, I really investigated. Oh, look at that. Beneath the anger, oh, there's sadness. I stay with the sadness. Beneath the sadness, oh, there's love. I thought it was just anger. Oh my gosh, look at that, amazing. And so this is the quality, the meditative quality that we call investigation. Really, really crucial for being with the difficult. And of course, when we can be with our own difficulties, we can also be with others' difficulties. It doesn't freak us out so much. When I've really studied anger a lot in myself, I can be with other people's anger and I say, oh, look at that. I recognize that pattern rather than just going right away to the second arrow. Someone's angry towards us. We, we can more maybe have a sense of what's going on internally and not be totally hooked into patterns of reaction. So really, this is, this is one of the hearts of our practice generally. You know, being able to be skillful with what's difficult. Kind of a related area is the third area I wanted to mention, which is being with uh, not knowing, being with unknowing. This is, we could say, is part of what it means to be with the dark. Can I be with what I don't, with an area of my life that I don't know? Does anyone here have any area of your life that's unresolved? (laughs) Raise your hand if you do. Okay, very good. So about two thirds. (laughs) Okay, the people who have their lives totally resolved, next week you'll be the teacher. Okay. Um, but there's, there's a wonderful place for listening quietly to what's there, you know. And a lot of times we get busy and we have, we have unresolved issues. Okay. We have unresolved issues and unless we have that stopping and the quiet, it's very hard to get at major unresolved issues that have some depth when our mind's really busy and active. It can often take that um, quieting down to really know the way to go, really to, to be able to, to listen carefully. I remember there's a, really, uh, there's a great story from the life of Gandhi uh, about a time in the movement for Indian independence, I think it was around 1929, when Gandhi didn't know what to do. He was in a state of unknowing. And people were coming up to him saying, what should we do? He said, I don't know. He said, what do you mean? You're supposed to know, you're Gandhi. Right? And he said, I don't know. And he said, I will just listen until I know. And he sort of stepped back from the Indian independence movement and he went back to his community. He lived on what he called an ashram, a community which was by the river. And he said, I'm going to sit on the porch of my home and do nothing and watch the river. And he did that. And people would come to him and say, what should we do? And he said, I don't know. I know I will hear the inner voice, but I have not heard it yet. And he listened and he listened and he listened. And he took, uh, after six weeks, he said he heard something. And what he heard was that what would be valuable next in the independence movement 
was to, would be to march to the sea and against the law that the British had that had the people of India could not make salt from the ocean. He said, we will make salt. And so he began what was called the Great Salt March. Some of you probably have seen that in the film on Gandhi. And he started, I think, with 250 people and they marched out from the ashram. And uh, by the time they had got to the ocean, it was 10,000 people. And they started a campaign of making salt, which was committing civil disobedience. The British came down really, really harshly with a lot of violence. And in the international opinion, there was loss of legitimacy of the occupation. And many historians think that it was actually a turning point in the, uh, in the movement. And it came out of that waiting and listening and not rushing things and wanting really to have that voice of uh, from the depths be, be heard. And I think this is very much what we can do, especially at this time, to listen carefully. So can we find that quiet that's necessary? And in, in a way, you know, when we, when we would meditate for a period at this time, often, like, I like to, when I, when I go into a period of quiet, I try not to have an agenda. I try not to say, okay, I've got unresolved issues one, two, and three. At the end of three days, they should be resolved. Inner voice, please do your work. It doesn't work like that, does it? We, it's more that we, we go into a period of quiet and we, in a sense, have a certain amount of trust that what comes to our attention will be what we need to learn, even if it's not what we think we want to learn. It's interesting, right? Do you know that one? Right, that we have to listen and sometimes we'll get something coming that we, we didn't think was there and our major unresolved issue actually may not get uh, resolved, but maybe something else comes to our attention. And so a lot of our practice really depends on a certain kind of faith or trust or confidence in the unfolding of our experience and that if we actually listen carefully as best we can, we'll get what is available at the moment. Maybe something else will come, will come later. And so we have, to, we have to be in a period of not knowing. We have to be able to stay sometimes with not knowing towards that which is unresolved. You know, um, I, I've thought about this principle of not knowing and I'm, I'm kind of inspired by uh, my, again, my colleague Diana Winston uh, brought this principle of not knowing to a group of teenagers for a teen retreat. And they said, you know, not knowing is good, but you have to correct that. Not knowing by itself is not good enough. And they said, you have to say, not knowing, but keep going. <laughs> and so that was like a very friendly correction, <laughs> right? So it's not knowing, but keeping going. Even if sometimes keeping going, you have to stop. Okay, hope I'm not getting too confused with my metaphors. <laughs>
Let me see if I find there's... There is a, a beautiful passage in uh, a book called Letters to a Young Poet that uh, Rilke wrote to this young poet. Um, Rilke was 29 at the time, so he was an old poet. <laughs> the young poet was like 20. <laughs> but he wrote Letters to a Young Poet. And the poet, he wrote to this uh, young poet that the poet was trying to resolve things too quickly. He had to be able to stay with what was unresolved in his life and listen over and over again and have the value of listening to what was unresolved and do that for a period of time and have that be a way of life, that he would listen to the questions. And he said, someday you may live into the answers. But for right now, live with the questions. Live with the unresolved issues. And that was his counsel. It's a very beautiful counsel for, for not knowing. Then the last quality I want to talk about is the sense of, uh, the sense of being with the dark as also generating Insight, knowing, something that's fruitful, that when we actually can be with the difficult or be with the unknown, when we stay with that, something comes out of the process. That when we can, you know, much like the example from Gandhi, that when we can stay with the unknown and look deeply, sometimes something unresolved or not known or difficult needs us to go to a deeper level. We can't uh, resolve the issue with our, with our present understanding. We have to come to some deeper understanding. And so being with the darkness as uh, the difficult, the unknown, can be generative or fertile, can lead to insight and transformation. You know, I, I thought, thought of my, my father, Simon, uh, became blind when he was uh, younger than 50 years old. Probably the result of unsupervised experiments uh, as a chemist working for the government. And, but he was not really bitter. And he was blind and had to stop driving, had to really change his work. He was blind the last... Uh, almost like 30 years of his life. And, and, but something opened up in his blindness. I found that there was almost like more emotion, more kindness, more love was a fruit of that. You know, it was very interesting. He, he couldn't really, uh, so much of our view of other people comes through the vision, doesn't it? Interesting that he could be with people and he, they would know he would not judge them because of how they looked. Isn't that interesting? I mean, and it's very interesting. So he would be with them in a way that was really different maybe from how other people were. And I found there was like this opening of his heart as he couldn't see, as there was a loss, as he was with something that was difficult. And there's actually, you know, in a lot of cultures, uh, blind people 
carry the wisdom of the culture. You see that, I know you, you see that ancient Greek culture. There is a figure named Teresius who is blind but carried the wisdom of the culture. And a lot of cultures, those who are blind, they see, as it were, in a different way, which I think my father could do. He could see in a different way because of the shift in his internal, internal process. This is from the, the poet Rumi. Some nights stay up until dawn, as the moon sometimes does for the sun. Be a full bucket pulled up the dark way of a well and then lifted out into the light. And so there's this possibility, I think, of being with what's difficult, what things we don't know, and having that be generative of light. It's difficult because we don't know and we may be caught in negative narratives. Oh, it's going to turn out this way. I think that's true individually. It's very true at our, this time in our culture, in our society, right? That we're in a time of a lot of unknowing and a lot of difficulty. You know, I know in meeting people, I, I meet a certain number of people one-on-one and a certain percentage of the people I work with have been really uh, triggered by the combination of the fires, the reports on climate change and the political events and are in a very difficult place really of really being uh, negative, caught in negative scenarios. It's just going to, things are just going to be bad, right? And probably all of us have that at times. There's a, uh, a term which, which, I, which I like a lot uh, which, which I've taught on some, which is the dark night of the soul. Do you know that term? Which was originally a term developed by the uh, Christian mystic, St. John of the Cross in like the 16th century. and was actually taken to be a, a more advanced stage of spiritual development when everything dries up and you don't know what's true and you're lost and it feels dry and arid, but you have to stay with it because it actually is a deep, it's actually a more advanced place of development. And out of that comes something actually much more beautiful and powerful than where you were before. And there are ways, I, I think, in which we're in a kind of a, something of a collective dark night. Does that resonate with you? There's a kind of collective dark night and we don't know what will happen. We have all these crises that I didn't mention, you know, uh, assuming that you know what I'm referring to, you know whether you know the crises of the climate or economic inequality or the threats to democracy or the racism or you know, probably could add a few more, but those are some of the major ones, right? And we have that, and there's a way in which it's a kind of a a collective dark night. And I think that people who are skilled from their own internal practice of working with difficulties, working with the unknown, are the people that are incredibly needed right now. If you've worked with your own unknowing, if you've worked with your own uh, difficulties, darkness in that sense, even if you've worked with your own personal dark night, you will be incredibly valuable if there's a period of a collective dark night, which I think we're many intimations that that's part of the process right now. That there are a lot of ways, you know, most of us 
maybe don't want to look too closely at things, but when we do, sometimes we may feel that. Does that resonate with people some? That there's a kind of a... And part of the... Uh, what's valuable is knowing that the darkness is also generative. This is from uh, an activist named uh, Valerie Kaur, Kaur, K-O-U-R. She says, breath, labor, or breathe, labor, push. What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a country waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all of our grandfathers and grandmothers are standing behind us now? Those who survived occupation and genocide, slavery and Jim Crow, detentions and political assault. What if they are whispering in our ear tonight, you are brave? What if this is our nation's great transition? Breathe, labor, push. Interesting, interesting perspective. This is from the Sufi poet Hafiz. I wish I could show you when you were lonely or in the darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Right? So again, the invitation here is to study our own not knowing, our own difficulties, and that doing so is not only valuable personally, but makes us capable of working with uh, those phenomena at a group level, at a national level, at an international level, that if we can be skilled in knowing what it is to be with difficulty, if we can know what it is to be with the unknown, if we can see that value of sometimes stopping and coming back to our, uh, coming back to doing nothing, as a way of uh, generating new growth. If we can know that uh, the difficult and the uh, periods of unknowing can be generative, can lead us into further insight, that's exactly what we need in our time, I think. And so my invitation would be, take this as a practice for the next week. When the difficult occurs, say, oh, Invitation to practice, not just, uh, you know, not to, as it were, curse the difficulty, but to take it as an invitation to learn, to take, uh, to take this moment, this difficulty, to bring practice to it. So my invitation would be, see which of these uh, approaches resonate. You know, consider having a period in which you stop, even if you just stop every day for a little bit. That's part of the practice. Consider uh, saying when you have a moment of difficulty and it's workable. Again, when it's not workable, when it's too much, we have to have ways of coming back to balance. A lot of different ways to do that. When it's workable, it's not totally overwhelming. Can I be skillful with the difficult? How do I do that? How I do, I do, do I do that internally, interpersonally? But let me take this as a challenge. Let me take this as my practice. You may want to say, okay, every time I experience a difficulty or what's unpleasant in the next week, I'm going to say, oh, a time for practice. Wonderful. How's that sound? And remember, the, the way to really balance the difficult is to also deliberately 
go into the beautiful, the wonderful, the beautiful qualities of heart and mind. So if you take on the, the practice of being with the difficult, you also have to, every day, be with the wonderful. Okay? So if you take this on every day, spend a certain amount of time with beauty. Again, could be the beauty of the world outside or inside. Could be the uh, world of art, music, dance, whatever. So if you take on the practice of being with difficulty, you also take on the practice of, of regular times with beauty. Okay? And uh, you could also take on the practice of being with the unknown, of sitting, and really let this be part of the inspiration for your daily practice, if you have a daily practice, that you can take at the beginning of it, let me be with the unknown. Let me be, let me be fresh with the mis- mystery of this coming moment. Yeah. So you can actually say right at the beginning of a meditation, let me be with the mystery. Sometimes we, how many of us sometimes in our meditation just try to, oh, let's just have, get to that pleasant state that I knew from yesterday or the day before. Let's just have a pleasant, calm experience. Okay, that has its value. But can I just, can I actually say, let me be with the unknown, the mysterious, and be fresh to whatever's occurring and have that be at the beginning of one's practice. So I'm going to end with, again, one of my favorite poems. This is from uh, Pablo Neruda. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. That's our practice. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So thank you. And how many of you would like to take on some element of what I've talked about in the next week? Okay, that'd be great. And why don't you reflect right now, what's the, what's the best way for me to do that? Could be one of the suggestions I made or maybe something that just occurs to you. So thank you, and we have about uh, 10 minutes or so for any uh, questions, uh, discussions, stories. Anyone want to share or ask a question? Yeah, we have one right up front. Yeah, yeah wait for the microphone. No. Um, I, what you said deeply resonates with me about um, going into the darkness and, uh, and fishing for that light and so so much of it um i'm i feel like sometimes i feel i do i i do feel like i'm very good at taking the high road but i do feel like i get exhausted taking the high road and i'm wondering if you have any insight on that do you want to Just, say more what you mean by taking the high road well if i if i'm faced with a lot of negativity hmm. i won't go there. Yeah. You know, I won't get involved. I'll witness it and everything, but there's part of me that gets exhausted that 
Mm. I'm staying at a certain level yeah. <laughs> and, and not getting it and not, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe just not saying, um, who the hell do you think you are? You know, yeah. <laughs> or whatever, just, just, um, uh, just staying present and mindful and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's a wonderful question. Okay. And it really points to, um, through the complexities and challenges of taking this approach, particularly, I think, interpersonally with speech, uh, a lot of it is going to really be there with what's your motivation. And, and I think sometimes it is skillful uh, to um, kind of respond sometimes matching the energy that's there. But it really is a matter of like knowing what's going on internally. So I think what you're pointing to, particularly with the example of you get negative energy coming towards you. This is sort of like advanced practice and probably higher level of complexity than what it is to work with uh, this when it's, you're in meditation. So I just want to make that comment that it's, it's a quite challenging aspect of things. And um, it can be really helpful. I mean, I, I teach, uh, co-teach... Um, retreats on speech and mindful communication and in the retreats we do role plays where people practice being with difficult interpersonal situations it's a hell of a lot of fun but you get to try out and say okay what was where am i coming from so you might even try it out with a friend do some role playing that might be a way to explore because you're really wanting to explore is there a way that i can not totally give in to my habitual energy but sometimes respond not simply by saying, I don't know what you, would, what, you, what you say, but can I, is there a way of responding skillfully and somewhat matching the energy, you know, of, this, of the situation? But a lot of it's really like, where am I coming from? Can I have enough presence of mind to say, um, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to keep the sense of connection and compassion there and what would be a skillful way of response where I simply don't withdraw, let's say, because I'm hearing that's a tendency, right? And, and challenging to explore that. You maybe try it with friends, do role plays. There are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of possibilities. One, one way sometimes is to actually try to go to empathy and try to have a sense of, oh, I'm really, that really sounds hard and painful for you. So you're not withdrawing, but you're actually meeting the person. Not easy, easy, way easier said than done. But there are a whole range of options. And I think your question comes from the sense that, sensing maybe that there are some other options in which you would keep your integrity of not just simply reacting, but to, could explore some other possibilities. So another, another time we can go into that in more depth. Yeah. But it's a good question, really important question. Not just uh, in terms of personal response, but in terms of responding to the, the world, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I can relate to what she's saying. And I'm wondering um, if you're dealing with someone who continually shoots the arrow. Yeah. And you're continually not shooting the second arrow. If you're dealing with someone who really relishes shooting the arrow and possibly sees uh, your uh, non-compliance with the scenario as weakness, 
there's the fear that it will go on into infinity. Right. This kind of. Uh, right. Does anyone relate to this question? Okay. Yeah. Um, really, two responses. One of them is to know <clears throat> that uh, on a scale of uh, degree of difficulty from one to ten, we're talking now about the eights or nines or tens, and that a real, you know, part of <clears throat> in any training, part of how we learn to be with the more difficult situations is to work with all these principles with less difficult situations. In other words, to work with your meditation where it's maybe a six and you're working with it internally and you can see how you uh, respond internally or work, try to work with a situation maybe with a, another person where it's not an eight or nine or 10, but maybe it's a five, but similar dynamics and see how you could work with that because um, we develop the capacities by working where the situations are not as hard, uh, where they're easier. That's how we really develop the muscle. Every form of training works on that principle. If you only exercise these capacities when, with the really difficult things, it'll be too much and you, we really won't learn. I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but just, just a reminder of that. And then, um, yeah, how to respond when someone is being continually reactive to you? Uh, it depends on the nature of the relationship. Uh, for some people, you may not want to be in relation to that person. In some situations, it might be a family member or a neighbor or someone, a coworker, where you don't have that choice, right? And, and so what to do then? Um, I think very helpful to study your own, um, your own reactions and to study your own. There's a lot we can do internally. The basic response I'm, in, I'm giving is with those pretty difficult situations, think of what you're doing as, two, as having two major areas of practice. One is how you work internally with what comes up. And secondly, how you respond and work externally. And don't forget the first because the other person is clearly reactive and so forth. So we always want to do the first, which means to look at how it comes up in our meditation, maybe do some inner work with it. Uh, uh, you know, I taught last weekend, or was it? No, the, the weekend before, I taught a three-day residential retreat on transforming the judgmental mind. We also brought in the perspective of Byron Katie, who has some very valuable tools in which we, even where the other person is clearly reactive, we may have a lot of stuff that we can look at ourselves. And one of the perspectives you can have is that if you have to be in relation to this person, that you have the capacity for advanced learning. And you can thank you so much. I wouldn't be learning these advanced capacities without your Reactivity. Uh, thank you so much. They call that what? positive reframing of a negative. Yeah. yeah. Also, you can do that nationally. Yeah. But again, that's... Uh, so being with these uh, really difficult situations, I don't want to only focus there. 
today, but that's, it's really a, a very rich area, please. What is the name of that Neruda poem? Oh, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, it? I don't have a name for it, but if you, if you um, f- use the first two w- uh, lines, you can probably find it online. I, I found it in a, a book from a friend of mine by Ruth, named Ruth Gendler, who had an anthology of poetry called Changing Light, which you can buy on our website. Okay, advertisement. Okay, uh, but the first two lines are, if each day falls inside each night. So probably you can Google it and, and get it. Yeah. Okay. I guess I was um, kind of thinking when you were talking about you know, sh- um, being with the darkness. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking of brain science and uh, maybe cognitive therapy. I'm not sure, but I had heard like change a negative thought with a positive thought immediately in an action. Yeah. So I was just wondering, just on the brain science wise, like to if you be with it too much, that maybe you're making a neural path down a negative path. I'm just kind of curious on that. Yeah. Or is it yes, indeed? Okay. That being being with what's difficult. Yes. Yeah. We really want to. I'm understanding where you're going with this. We really want to watch especially our habitual thoughts related to being with something difficult or unknown. We really want to be careful for, we could call it shooting the second arrow, uh, times when something difficult is there and we create some narrative like, this will always be this way. Or we want to watch those narratives. They're very likely to be forming in situations in which there's something difficult or we don't know. So we want to really be careful of that. And some positive framing can be quite helpful. Like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what will come of this, but let me take this as uh, that learning will come out of it. Can be very, very helpful. Uh, part of the, I think the attitude of our practice is to take everything as potential learning. Again, that doesn't mean sometimes we might say it is not wise to be with this person anymore. That's, that's okay, right? This isn't being masochistic, but to take everything as learning. Maybe the learning is that I sometimes stay too long with people with whom it's not good to be with, right? That could be the learning, right? So to take everything as learning, watch out for reactive negative thoughts, particularly narratives, you know, uh, because those are likely to form when something is difficult for us. It's a form of the second arrow. It could be being judgmental towards self or other and so forth. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, maybe last one, I think, then we'll, then we'll finish. I was just wondering if you could repeat the name of the poet that had the line about what if this is a womb and not a tomb? Oh, it was uh, an activist. I forget her website. Maybe some of you know. Valerie, uh, first name, uh, K-A-U-R, core. Yeah. I think, I think she has, I think it's, it has, uh, the website has heart in the, the name. It's like, uh, it's basically a website devoted to spiritually grounded activists. And I think they're particularly from a Christian perspective, I think. Yeah. Great. So that was one of the easier questions to answer. <laughs> so, So let's take a few moments and just to come back to that intention. What's your intention leaving? Again, it might be to 
take on as a practice to say, okay, I'm going to look into when I can have a time of stopping. Might be that. Might also be related to the next week of working with the practice of being with what's difficult, being with what's not known. And how might you do that? How might you also remember to do it? Maybe intentions in the morning. So we end with, uh, in a traditional way, with what's called the dedication of merit. We offer the benefits of our time together, our practice here. We offer the benefits to ourselves, but we also offer the benefits to others, ultimately all others, so that we ultimately do offer the benefits to all beings, which includes us. So may, may you explore wonderful things and come back with wonderful stories, which we'll hear next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.